0: It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 224, December 5th, 2010. Recorded December 3rd. I wanted to tell you about a utility you've probably missed, Windows PowerShell. I say it's a utility you've probably missed because I know I certainly missed it. PowerShell has been around for a while. That's too bad because I used to like performing magic tricks with bat files. It's not too bad that it's been around. It's too bad that I missed it for all these years. I like bat files back in the days when DOS ran our desktop computers well, computers no longer run on DOS, but a DOS-like command line is available. And PowerShell, which is part of Windows, brings some truly powerful programming capabilities to the command line. Windows PowerShell is Microsoft's task automation framework. Consists, yeah, it's no longer called a batch language. It's the task automation framework. Consists of a command line shell and the associated scripting language built on top of and integrated with .NET Framework. PowerShell provides access to the component object model and to the Windows management instrumentation so users can perform administrative tasks on both local and remote Windows systems. PowerShell is buried deep in the menu structure. From start, go to All Programs, Accessories, Windows PowerShell, Windows PowerShell. And a good idea at that point would be to right-click and select Run as Administrator. Although documentation is limited... PowerShell includes a console-based help similar to the man pages that you'd find in Unix or Linux. Unlike Unix and Linux command names, which are so short as to be unintelligible, for example, man-cp, the PowerShell command line names are so long that they're unwieldy, get-help-copy-item. space I should point out, though, that PowerShell has aliases, and many of those Unix Linux aliases are actually set up. So you can type help copy item or help cp or even man cp, and you'll get the same help page. Windows PowerShell looks somewhat like the old DOS command line or the Windows command prompt, but it is far more capable. PowerShell can run four classes of commands – things called commandlets, which are net framework programs. These typically are full applications that have been written by a software developer then compiled into a dynamic link library. It can run PowerShell scripts. Scripts look a lot like batch files from the old DOS days and command scripts from Windows XP and later. They usually have a PS1 file extension. Then there are PowerShell functions. These are the equivalent of built-in commands that date back to DOS. And finally, executable programs. In other words, any standard application can be started from the PowerShell. Executable programs are launched in a separate process while commandlets run within the existing PowerShell process, which is based on the Win32 console. Much like Unix and Linux, PowerShell allows the use of pipes to create a series of commands that create output and pass that output to the next command as that command's input. A Wikipedia article points out that unlike Unix and Linux pipe operators, the PowerShell pipe operator expects objects. That is, the data passed between commandlets are fully typed objects rather than just character streams. When data is piped as objects, the elements they encapsulate retain their structure and types across commandlets. This means there is no need for any serialization or explicit parsing of the stream as would be needed if only character streams were shared. For all of the complexity of that statement, what it really means is that commandlets are far more capable than the standard Unix or Linux commands, and that because they carry a lot of information with them, less error checking is required of the program that uses them. Now, Windows doesn't have a built-in way to print a directory listing. It's easy enough to do that by opening a command prompt, navigating to the directory you want to print, and then typing dir the greater than symbol, and some file name, like list.txt, for example. Then you print list.txt after opening it in a text editor or a word processor. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, I show you how to use Windows PowerShell to do kind of a basic listing of a directory. But that's really not a very good use of all that power. In fact, if you really want just a directory listing, you could use Firefox, Chrome, or Opera. Users of Safari and Internet Explorer are pretty much out of luck. In Firefox, you type file, colon, three forward slashes, and the name of the directory that you want to list. Firefox produces, in my estimation, the best-looking list. Chrome is the second-best option. Same drill, file, colon, three forward slashes, and the directory name. You get a directory listing. It's just, I don't think, quite as well organized. I don't care much for Opera's directory view. I suppose it's kind of nice to have the Opera logo as part of it. But file information is sometimes spread over two lines, and that just doesn't seem like a very good way of doing things. Safari, if you try Safari, the browser says it needs enhanced permissions to continue. This is probably something that could be easily resolved, but why bother? And Internet Explorer, big fail. Instead of displaying a directory, Internet Explorer opens the Windows Explorer. If you're a Microsoft programmer, that probably makes sense. But you can't print a directory listing from there. Here it is, the beginning of December, and we think of... video. The thought pattern works this way. End of the year. Winter solstice. Religious holidays. Gifts. Video. Some of those gifts are bound to be video cameras or digital SLR cameras that include the ability to capture video. But capturing video is just the first step. If you want the video to serve any purpose, editing is essential. The good news this year is that editing video has become a whole lot easier than you thought. Most people seem to fear video editing, and I think I know why. Audio editing isn't distressing because many people made mixtapes sometime in their lives... I remember cutting together hours' worth of audio using a turntable, you know, those little round things with a hole in the middle and the grooves and those things, and a reel-to-reel recorder. Cassette recorders made the process easier. and The advent of applications such as iTunes and Winamp simplified the process even more. Audio editing really isn't too intimidating anymore. Photo editing isn't too intimidating either because you can see the changes in real time as you make them and applications such as Adobe Lightroom, Photoshop Elements, and Picasa make the process something most people can comprehend. But few people have had any experience with video editing. That's because film editing, whether 16mm, 8mm, or Super 8, was terribly intimidating. One mistake and you ruined everything. With film, there was no undo command. Besides that, video editing also requires audio editing. A friend who worked in the business said, and I quote, I spent way too many hours on the Moviola and building original A-B rolls. The new way is better. Much better. But people continue to be intimidated because video editing requires that you find a way to acquire or import the video from a camera, that you understand the various video formats and time codes, that you figure out how video compression works so you can create programs for others to view, And so on. At least, that's what most people seem to think. But I have good news for you. Maybe this should be a secret. It's not that hard. The folks at Adobe's PR agency sent me a copy of Premiere Elements to take a look at. If you're a video professional, Premiere Elements probably isn't sufficient for you. But just as Photoshop Elements, which isn't Photoshop, packs features that home users will need into an easy-to-use package, Premiere Elements gives you everything you need to create home videos that will be the envy of your peers. Here's a true story. I have dozens of VHS, 8mm, and Hi8 videos that I've wanted to convert to DVDs for my two daughters. After tinkering with Premiere Elements and watching Jeff Sengstack's introduction to Premiere Elements on lynda.com, I knew I could do it. They don't tell Elizabeth and Katie, but this year at Christmas, they're going to receive a coupon. You'll have to go to the TechBiter Worldwide website to see it. It promises them the Blinn family videos. In his Linda.com video, Jeff Sengstack says that video editing can be enjoyable, easy, and rewarding, and he's right. But he also went on to describe the process, which can be, if not intimidating, at least confusing. And I quote, First, you shoot your raw footage. Then you transfer that raw, unedited video to your computer where it's stored as a collection of files. In Premiere Elements, you create links to those files as well as to audio, photo, and graphics files. This linking process is called importing or getting media. It's important to know that Premiere Elements does not change, copy, move, or delete those original files. Now you start editing your video. There are several approaches to video editing. Most frequently, you'll probably want to arrange your clips into a rough cut. Then you can rearrange and trim away video you don't want to use from some of the clips. You can place transitions between scenes, put video and audio effects on some clips, plus add graphics and text that can appear on top of those clips. You might want to include music or narration. Finally, when you're all done, you share your finished product. You can create a DVD with menus or simply create your project into a single video file that you can upload to the Internet or play on your computer or mobile phone. Those are the words of Jeff Sengstack in his lynda.com video. And all the time I thought videos came from elves working in the Blackwood Forest in Germany. So what is this Premiere Elements? Well, Adobe's professional video editing suite includes on-location Premiere and After Effects. These are applications that professionals use. By comparison, Elements is, well, elementary. Even so, the capabilities are surprising. As an editing application, Premiere is nonlinear and non-destructive. So is Premiere Elements. I remember working on video projects back in the 1980s, and although the process was nonlinear, it wasn't easy. The process could be made non-destructive in those days, too, but that wasn't easy either. And studio time, well, that could easily run several hundred dollars per hour, even if you worked with low-rate university editing shops that took in a little outside business to defray expenses. And, of course, that was in 1980s dollars. So what do I mean by those terms, non-linear that means the various video clips in your presentation can be moved around. They don't have to be shot and processed in the same order. Non-destructive. That means that even though you may trim the beginning or ending frames from a scene, you don't delete anything from the raw footage. No matter what you trim in editing, you can always get it back if you decide you need it. Professional applications such as Premiere have a timeline view. Premiere Elements has a timeline view but it also has a newbie-friendly scene line view that makes much more sense to new users. So you might want to start with the scene line view, but transition to the timeline view as quickly as you can because the results will be better. You'll see both the timeline view and the scene line view on the TechBiter Worldwide website. In the timeline view, the width of each scene gives you a visual indication of the scene's length. You also have access to more advanced video and audio editing controls, as well as the ability to add additional layers of video for titling and other creative effects. Even if you start with the scene line view, you should graduate to the timeline view just as soon as you can. The scene line view looks a lot like a storyboard. You gain simplicity, but this comes at the cost of forfeiting some of the more powerful features. In this view, a scene that is five seconds in length takes just as much space as a scene that's five minutes long. You can tell virtually nothing from the icon, and then there are small rectangles between the scenes. Those are where you drop transition elements. But what I found is that Premiere Elements is easier and far more powerful than I expected. Particularly with the help of Jeff Sengstack's instructional video from Lynda.com, I was able to create an acceptable video on my first try. The second and third attempts were considerably more polished as I returned to Sengstack's program for refreshers, and Premiere Elements has some built-in features that help those of us who aren't video professionals. For example, when I set up a program and then attempted to import video, the application told me that the format I had selected did not match the video I was trying to import. Would I like to change the settings to match the inbound video, it asked? Well, of course I would. When it's time to share the video, Premiere Elements offers several options. DVD, file on a computer, file on the internet, file for a mobile phone, or even outputting to digital video tape. Premiere Elements even takes care of video compression so that your production will fit on the type of disc or whatever media you're using. The bottom line for Premiere Elements? Home video producers, your wish has been granted five cats. This is another Adobe product that, like Photoshop Elements, does require a little bit of explanation of my grading scale. If you're a professional video editor in an agency shop, this is not the application for you. You would need to lay out some big bucks and purchase the full Creative Suite CS5. But if you're someone who wants to spend a relatively short period of time learning how to edit videos and then make videos that will astound your friends, Premiere Elements is just what you need. Premiere Elements is available alone for less than $100 or with Photoshop Elements for less than $150. That is, I should point out, about a tenth the cost of Adobe Creative Suite CS5 with Premiere in it. For more information, visit the Adobe Premiere Elements website. You'll find a link from the Tech Fighter Worldwide website. And happy video making. In short circuits, this week I wrote an open letter to Google. Here's my letter. Hey Google, maybe you've noticed that the world has moved on from 8-bit operating systems that predated your company to 16-bit systems, 32-bit systems, and since Windows XP, 64-bit systems. Now, it's true that only a few XP users opted for the 64-bit version, but after all, that was back in 2003, a couple of years after XP was introduced. 64-bit adoption picked up during the Vista years because that's the only version that more or less worked. Now, according to Microsoft, almost half of all PCs running Windows 7 are running 64-bit editions of the operating system. Oh, and you may have noticed that Windows 7 is selling very well. So why does Google Calendar Sync still not work with 64-bit systems? It would seem you've forgotten about it. I performed a Google search and found on a Google blog that, and I quote, Google Calendar Sync isn't working with Windows XP 64-bit edition. Close quote. There's not even a mention of Vista or Windows 7. Might that be because that update was posted on September 30th, 2008? That is 796 days ago, as of today's program date. Please be informed, the post says, that Windows XP 64-bit edition isn't compatible with Google Calendar Sync at this time. The post goes on to say that the team is definitely aware of the strong desire to use this feature, and we're keeping track of all reports and requests as we work to improve Google Calendar Sync. Sure you are. That's why you haven't updated the information in more than two years. You're so busy keeping track of all those requests that you haven't had time to do any work. Google Calendar Sync is a pretty cool application. Well, Google Calendar Sync was a pretty cool application several years ago, back when just about everybody was using a 32-bit operating system. So come on, Google, get with the program. Update your app so that they will work with the operating system that more than half of Windows 7 users have installed. According to Microsoft, in July, 64-bit adoption was 46%. My guess is that it's expanded a bit since then, but even if 64-bit penetration is still only 46%, why are you penalizing nearly half of the Windows 7 users by ignoring them? I sent that message to Google's media relations staff, and I got a response from Victoria Katzaro. It seems that I was partially wrong. Victoria says both Windows and Outlook can be found in 32-bit and 64-bit versions. Actually, I knew that. You mentioned that Google Calendar Sync doesn't work with 64-bit Windows, but it does. That is, if you're using 32-bit Outlook. Well, I started to laugh, but then... Wait, you're, you're serious, aren't you? You expect me to use a 64-bit operating system on 64-bit hardware and to limit the applications I use to their 32-bit versions? I continued reading Victoria's message. What we do not support yet is 64-bit Outlook. We actually launched a new version of GCS a few months ago to add support for that new release of Outlook, 2010, but only the 32-bit edition. She provided a link to the blog post that announced it, and you'll find that link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. So the 64-bit support will be coming, too. It is possible to use Google Calendar Sync with 32-bit Outlook on a 64-bit version of Windows. So I sent a message back to Victoria. You're serious, aren't you? You expect me to use a 64-bit operating system on 64-bit hardware and to limit the applications to their 32-bit versions? It's been seven years since Microsoft introduced a 64-bit operating system. Where has Google been all that time? The Google response to that from Victoria was, as I explained, it in fact does work with 64-bit Windows operating system, just limited to 32-bit Outlook 2010. Okay, so that's rather like having an eight-cylinder automobile, isn't it? And using just four cylinders? It might work, but you sure won't enjoy it. High-tech exports seem to be down, but they're still important. Tech America Foundation released its annual report this week. The report details national and state trends in the international trade of high-tech goods report called Trade in the Cyber States 2010, a state-by-state overview of high-tech international trade, covers all the 50 states, the District of Columbia, and Puerto Rico. Despite the fact that it's the 2010 report, it covers the year 2009. Only four states showed improvements in high-tech exports, Alaska, Wyoming, Louisiana, and Arkansas. Yeah, these are not four states that are real well-known for their technological ability, That's confirmed by their rankings, Louisiana 41st, Arkansas 47th, Alaska 48th, and Wyoming 52nd. Bottom of the barrel might not be much of an overstatement, or perhaps that would be an understatement. Wyoming, for example, ranks below even Puerto Rico, which is 23rd, and the District of Columbia, which is 45th, neither of which is generally regarded as being a primary high-tech exporter. By comparison, Ohio is 16th. Overall, U.S. high-tech goods exports fell by 16% in 2009 to $188 billion, and it represents about 18% of all U.S. exports. High-tech exports, in fact, form the largest merchandise export sector in the United States. High-tech imports were down by 11%, totaling $299 billion in 2009, and that resulted in a slight improvement in the high-tech trade deficit, which stands at $111 billion high tech exports supported nine hundred forty four thousand jobs in the u s according to the survey, but there is still that deficit one hundred eleven billion dollars in two thousand and nine down slightly from two thousand and eight when it was one hundred fourteen billion dollars. The largest overseas markets for u s high tech exports in two thousand and nine were the european union at thirty seven billion mexico at twenty eight billion canada at twenty four billion china at fourteen billion and Japan at nine billion. The top high-tech exporter is, big surprise here, California, followed by Texas, Florida, New York, and Massachusetts. All of those states saw high-tech exports decline, though, in 2009. The full trade in the cyber state's 2010 report and its sister publications can be purchased from the Tech America Foundation. You'll find a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.